Shattering the Glass Ceiling is a production of the Connecticut Democratic Party. I'm Tanaya Baker. And I'm Jacqueline Cozen. And we're your hosts for conversations with women who are the trailblazers, rising stars, elected officials, and campaign pros who make you say, I'm with her. everybody to another edition of our podcast shattering the glass ceiling today we're very excited to have Idi Nieves from um, the wonderful city of Bridgeport Connecticut's largest city I believe and uh, she serves as the president of the city council there welcome Idi thank you for being here thank you very much Jackie for having me and it's uh, an exciting time to be uh, part of this conversation with you Yes, yes, for sure. Um, yes. is, uh, so we're going to kick it. I'm going to kick it over to our operations director, Tanaya, and uh, she'll, she usually launches us into the conversation. <laughs> so uh, over to hey. you, Chi. <laughs> Hi, how are you? Thank you for joining us again. Hi, Tanaya. Nice to meet you. And I'm glad to be here to have this conversation. Um, just yesterday, I was on another panel discussion about women in leadership with the National League of Cities. So this is part two of that. So I'm excited to be part of the messaging here in Connecticut and as part of this podcast. Great. I'm excited too. So let's get right into the questions. Uh, tell us about your life story. Where did you grow up? How did, how did you get to where you are? Um, well, I have lived in Bridgeport all of my life. Um, I've actually lived in the same neighborhood. I've never moved out of the 06608 zip code. Oh, nice. So uh, to some people that is polarizing because it seems like I've never left my neighborhood, but I have, I've ventured outside of the East side, of course, like <laughs> everyone else, but my whole world has encompassed uh, actually the neighborhood in which I represent. Um, my grandparents uh, came here in the fifties. My mother is first generation. So I'm second generation here in the East side. And, uh, where did they come from? They came from Puerto Rico and back in the 50s. And uh, and most of my family lives here, still in the east side. I mean, my uncle's my aunt. So I'm deeply rooted, like more rooted and more like cemented into this neighborhood. <laughs> and, uh, so where my where that comes from and why I speak to that is because I was raised on East Main Street. Um, my grandfather had a business there. He was a, a bodega owner, a storefront owner for a very long time when East Main Street looked very different. Um, it was, you know, the lower East side right now where we see still points development happening. So that's where I was uh, initially raised. And then I moved to the other side of the railroad tracks, what they called, which was predominantly more Italian, Polish American, as um, home ownership started coming up here in the East side, in this side of the East side where I live now. Actually, the home that I live in is my aunt's, and she's been here for over 45 years. Wow. So it speaks to how deeply cemented I am to this community. But with that said, what I learned, what my story is growing up is that my grandfather, as a business owner, believed in community. Um, his way of being a community organizer and giving back was helping people in the neighborhood. He believed in keeping the, his storefront clean and free of debris and, and um, loitering and stuff like that, and, but always giving back and supporting those around him. And he was really well-respected, and I spent a lot of time with him um, learning how he was and how, you know, I was I was his favorite, so I'm going to name that now. But um, <laughs> I picked up a lot of his... Um, 
his ethic trait, his ethics and his ability to give back. And I think as a young girl, being um, the grandchild of a store owner, I tend to share a lot. So in giving and helping others, and I learned that from him. Um, and that's how I came to kind of get involved with it, with community uh, grassroots organizing. Um, and I started back when I was 19. My my council partner today was my mentor who, who kind of said, here, come help me do the street cleanup. And she got me to get involved at the age of 19 back in the 90s when, oh, wow. you know, when drugs and gang violence was very rampant here in the city of Bridgeport. And especially, uh, you know, being born and raised here. So, you know, my friends wouldn't come up East Main Street after 10 o'clock and my friend wouldn't drop me off because her mother wouldn't let her drive me to this side of town all the way into the East side because of carjacking, so on and so forth. So at 19, when I got involved, that was one of the reasons I got involved because I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed that the place that I was raised and born um, was not safe for everybody. It needed to be safe and fair. And so I started with block watches and, you know, trying to be the change in my community, doing street cleanups uh, with the police department back when community services, uh, community policing was really starting to launch out as a model. And that was kind of how I got my foot in the door of being active in my neighborhood, in my community. And, And my story starts there, but my initial foundation comes from being uh, with my grandfather in the store, watching him, taking care of his neighborhood. So it's something that I learned uh, growing up very young. Cool. Um, so what would describe your first political experience? Like how did you get politically engaged? I mean, when did you decide to run for office? And, um, you know, what kind of like spurred that? Like why, you know, because obviously being very engaged in your community and you took it to another level. Um, yes. So how did that all happen? Well, well, that came about a kind of organically. I was helping in campaigns all the time. I helped in various campaigns for different candidates, even uh, my council partner, Ana Maria Valle. I helped out um, in other campaigns. And one thing I have to speak to is I saw that in the east side of Bridgeport, we had a lot of female Latina leaders um, pre pre my position, right? So we had people like Leah Martinez, who is now our city clerk, but she represented the East Side. My current council partner, Maria Valle, who represents with me now, was, was running. So I helped her in her campaign. And she kind of was pulling me along to these events. And then I was helping the candidate out. And I said, I felt that I was working harder than the candidate. I was out there more <laughs> knocking on doors. And I, said, I can be a candidate. What, when's it going to be my turn? So my first run was in 2011, 2011, 2012. I ran. I, you know, it was, I, I initially was like, I don't really want to do this. I don't know if I'm ready. I had a lot of doubts. I was really waiting for my son to be at an age where I can balance being around for him because I didn't want to, uh, you know, as we say, lose him to 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 hanging out with things and doing things he shouldn't. So I waited till about his freshman year of high school, which was about 20, 2012. And I took my first opportunity in his freshman year. And I said, he's starting to go through high school. We can make this transition of me rebuilding my life. And I ran with Mary Jane Foster on her ticket. Um, it wasn't as successful as I thought it was going to be. You know, my my partner also helped me realize some things of my candidacy as a woman, as a female candidate um, running in the neighborhood, that there was still, you know, this predominantly male 
driven conversation. Let me be the man at the door. Don't speak. You're my partner, not we were partners together. So at that point, I ran in 2012 for my first council seat. I lost and I said, I'm not going to give up on my community. I'm going to run again. So I ran again in 2013, 2013-2014. Um, uh, we, we lost again. I lost by a few votes. This time it wasn't a, it wasn't such a landslide my initial like my initial race. But uh, at the third time was the charm. In 2015, I won in the primary and I became the councilwoman for the east side with um, with a pro, uh, with a previous partner, Milton Feliciano. So I first became a uh, councilwoman in 2015. 2015, and it was very interesting coming on as a freshman councilwoman. Um, after helping so many candidates and I had to see it through a different lens. Like, it, it's definitely different being on yes. the other side of it, like than being in the, the, the background. Can you talk yes. a little bit about that? Like what that yes. adjustment was like for you? I mean, and then you go on and you become the president. So I imagine then you have to adjust again. Like yes. how? So I think 2015 as, as a freshman councilwoman, um, I had a very good council president, which was Tom McCarthy, who sat there for many years. Oh, I love him. Yes. So, yes he's a great guy. So, um, and Tom always told me when I came in as a councilman, I always had a lot of doubt. Like, I was like, this isn't what I thought it was. And he'd always tell me, just read the stuff, learn, ask the questions that you're curious about. But what I did learn and I had to adjust to was the fact that I am just one vote in a body of 20 and you had to build consensus. And the, all of the things that I had talked about on my campaign trail, knocking on doors, was going to take a lot of work and building relationships. So I had to learn that I had to build relationships with my counterparts for them to understand my perspective of why I thought the way that I thought and to help understand what was important to those that were my constituents. Um, so coming from an advocacy lens and grassroots organizing where like, I wanna see change, I wanna see change, I'm gonna do this to learning that I have to work on building the relationships to build consensus to make the changes that everybody can agree with. Yeah. Right. And, and that was a very big learning curve for me and understanding the, the way municipalities work and inter um, government relations are and how actually as a council, we have to go through resolutions and, and the whole process of committee of committee conversations and really negotiating a vote, especially during budget time, um, and allocations of funds and how one thing can directly in or indirectly impact how we uh, service our community. So that was the biggest learning curve. And then becoming council president in my second term, once uh, Tom McCarthy decided to retire, um, kind of put me in another lens because I, I didn't really intend to become the council president. I said it as a joke and then uh, with a friend, with another council member, and, and so many people wanted to run it. And then, you know, having a conversation with Tom, he said, you need to see the path to, to get you there. And, and do you see it? And I, I did garner enough support to get me there. Thankfully, with some, of, with some of my other council partners and some other friends on the council that believed in uh, my ability to what they say is build consensus. And I'm very in the middle of the road with my politics. I'm willing to negotiate. So I had to, so being an only child, Help uh, me learn that. So <laughs> and that's that's a key to I think my success on the council is that I was an only child and I always had to be uh, either Holland or Switzerland. I had to be in the middle, <laughs> neutral all the time, right? 
<laughs> our childhood definitely does help uh, bring some negotiating uh, skills. Yeah. So, so it does bring negotiation skills and always trying to bring people together. Yeah. And I, I use my personal experiences growing up to having a large, like, uh, cousins and stuff like that. And being from a large family allowed me to be able to build consensus and, like, make everybody happy. Trying yeah, to make everybody right. happy, trying to help everybody understand and helping. And, it, and it's really about supporting and helping. And, and I learned that voice as a child. So I said, I could do this. I, I, I know how to get people together and build, build things up. But it was a learning curve as a woman. Um, and then coming in after someone behind someone who had been there so long and so many establishments, I had to build those relationships. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, he... Tom McCarthy did a great job as a council president, um, but being a woman and then being the new council president and only being um, in government for a full year and then being a sophomore freshman, a sophomore councilwoman in my second term, um, it spoke a lot to the trust that my peers had in me to elect me to be the council president mm-hmm. and the support that I've gotten from, uh, from even from Tom and other previous council presidents that have helped me. Um, and I've been fortunate because I have one uh, previous council president sitting with me on the council and he helped me a lot too, Ernest Newton. So oh, yeah. um, it was, uh, and my mentor, Maria Valle was with me on there. So she's always given me that advice as a woman, as a female leader, like lead with compassion, but still be passionate about what you believe in. And that those words always resonate in all the decisions that I make mm-hmm. and my choices. So uh, being a council president, for for me, it's been an honor. I didn't expect mm-hmm. it, but it was a glass ceiling moment for the city of Bridgeport because we hadn't had a, con- a female council president since uh, Lisa Parzial, which was back in the 80s. And, oh, wow. uh, so it was a long time, 80s, uh, late 80s, early 90s. So we hadn't had one for a very long time. And you're the first uh, Puerto Rican. Yes, the first Puerto Rican, yes. Yeah. So it mean- was- Oh, go uh-huh. ahead. Sorry. No, no. I apologize. No, no, no. Go ahead. So it was it was a a very proud moment for me and my community, even though uh, my family always makes fun of me. They were like, well, you've always been the little mayor in the family, like (laughs) delegating everybody. So that that role kind of becomes you. Yeah, (laughs) that's awesome. You mentioned (laughs) Tom McCarthy uh, a number of times in terms of helping to guide you along the way. And earlier you talked a little bit about men stepping in the way, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, so I was wondering if you, we had our uh, Hispanic Women's Leadership Panel discussion last week. The mm-hmm. uh, topic of machismo uh, came up uh, and just how sometimes that could, you know, be an obstacle um, in terms of progression. Um, but I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to that, but also like as a woman, what obstacles kind of came along your path and being a woman of color as well, um, that, and how you got over them? Uh, well, there, there are some obstacles of machismo, like I said earlier about, you know, it, it's always been like a boys, the, you know, politics have primarily been male, male dominated positions. Um, and my personality has been, uh, to, I can be a little Pass- overly passionate, I've been told, or or I'm aggressive. Yeah, like you're just too aggressive. No. Yes, <laughs> like you don't be so aggressive, or be nice. Lately, they've been telling me, "Are you going to be nice?" I'm like, if I was a man, you wouldn't ask me if I was going to be nice. Yeah, 
<laughs> you know, and and yes, there is that level of machismo where sometimes even now I'll have conversations with people with men that I know that are that are elected officials, and they're like, "Well, we think you should move on to this position in the future." Well, no one asked me. Well, maybe I don't want that position. So there is still that underlying implicit bias for us women in leadership. But um, my personal experience was. Uh, I was sitting in a meeting with the mayor and some of his department heads are predominantly male and um, they weren't understanding my perspective. And I, I banged my hand on the table in the sense of like to assert, like, this is my point. And uh, one of the gentlemen sitting to the, my left said, um, you're getting very emotional. Mm. I said, I'm not being emotional. I am stumping out the facts here and maybe using my hand is something that you're not used to but it doesn't change the fact that what I am saying is the right way we should move forward and the mayor looked at me and he said I like that you're that assertive he gave me that compliment he, he said I like that you were assertive at that moment to help everybody understand that you were not going to falter on your point although and I appreciated that so you know sometimes you know, he you know he compliments me and then sometimes some of his administration feels a little threatened by my overly assertiveness. So that was my one experience that I have to say that I felt that the mayor had my back. He understood where I was coming from as far as a female, as a female Latina leader. And, and you know, I've been told, you know, Latino, Puerto Rican women, you're loud, you know, you're loud. And, and, you know, sometimes you need to tone it down because you are the council president. And I, I don't think I should make excuses for how I feel about my passion about something. Yeah. And I think sometimes women, uh, if we were men, that exertion would be respected as assertiveness, aggressiveness, you know, he is headstrong, but for us, it's emotional and, and she's Latina or she's Hispanic. And you know how these, they're loud and boisterous. <laughs> I, and that imagery sticks in my head when I am trying to be assertive in a conversation and, and I tell people I'm not gonna I'm not gonna dumb down my passion about something or my assertiveness because if I was a man you'd respect the words coming out of my mouth a lot easier but it gets diminished sometimes and because I won't change um, I'm unapologetic about it and that's what I think women leaders need to learn we need to be unapologetic about how passionate we are about and it's not about passion it's about un understanding the message because we always seek to understand. Yeah. And I have learned to uh, adopt that model. And I always say, I'm seeking to understand the why, the who, the what, the where, the why, as women leaders tend to do, right? Yeah. Um, men tend to be very, in, in that aspect to me, very one-sided, very siloed in not seeing the bigger picture. And I like to see the bigger picture. And that was something I spoke about yesterday as female leaders and women leaders, we tend to want to, compound things to make sure that we're building pathways or really cementing things that are going to last, not for the moment, not just the band-aid fix it. And that's uh, something that I've learned that men struggle with as they hear my, my intention and my vision on things. Yeah. Right. And, and, and I agree. And I, and I like that you spoke on the fact that you are assertive as a woman and that's okay. And I, I just want to talk a little bit more about that. Uh, what do you feel are the advantages um, that women have when they're in these political um, positions and how they politic? Um, one of the advantages women have, I think, um, I believe, 
I believe is that we can we can multitask. We can see one component of something and build upon it. And that's because we're used to having to do that in our natural habits in our natural habits of life of the way we're raised. Like uh, we're raised to be able to, you know, do sports, still be a pretty girl, still take care of our homework, still do our chores. And, and our mothers, right, when we have strong mothers that way who, who create these young independent women that we are, some, mm-hmm. a lot of us are now, um, and developing our voice. And that, that's what I think women, women in leadership now have. And, uh, and I believe that uh, makes us stronger leaders because we're able to understand with, with compassion, but to be assertive, but to look for long-term impact. And we don't plan for now, we plan for the future. And that's, I think, the best tool we have in our toolboxes as uh, women, women in leadership positions, being able to look and have a lot of foresight, yeah. foresight for what may, may come. And I think uh, with that consideration, we tend to consider all inequality. We tend to work more from a silo, from a place of equality. It has to be equally the same across the board. We're looking for equality, not just for us, but for children, for women, for men, for everyone in the community. It's not just about one one component. And that's that's a uniqueness, I think, about being a a woman in a leadership position. Inclusivity. Sorry. Mm -hmm. And uh, just speaking back to, um, like, being a mother and being a professional, how do you balance that? Well, I balance it through uh, through a lot of uh, teamwork. So when when and my network, right, my personal network. When my son was still in high school, his dad and I um, we we worked on a lot of things. My mom helped me out uh, when I was first running for office. My sisters would babysit, make sure he got to his baseball game or basketball games, and I just had to learn to compartmentalize all of those things like the priorities and I still have to do that now as a council president uh you know working work-life balance is very important sometimes it can be cumbersome depending on on the season like right now we're going into budget season and and I know it's going to be cumbersome in a sense of budget hearings and wanting to partake in those conversations taking care and I am a grandmother now so you know I have to balance that like (laughs) My granddaughter comes over, you know, Friday, Saturday and Sunday. But, uh, you know, her mom knows every, you know, the first Monday and the, the third Monday of the month. I have council meeting and on Monday, so I'm unavailable. And Wednesdays, you know, the Wednesday week before, I'm usually unavailable because I'm working on the agenda mm-hmm. for that week, for that Monday's meet, following Monday's meeting. So it's about really setting up a schedule and living that kind of lifestyle. And then in the middle, fitting everything else in. But sometimes I do go off the radar, what I call off the radar. I, I shut everything down, which I've done. And it's important to take that uh, self-care and yeah. to take the time out as a leader of, of self-care and balance that part of my work-life balance. And I've learned that, that sometimes that means maybe just watching television, mm-hmm. you know, binge watching to one o'clock in the morning. Sometimes that's my self-care with popcorn. <laughs> and popcorn. I did that last night. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> literally with popcorn and uh Netflix so like yeah <laughs> I, I was so careful last night myself too <laughs> okay jalapeno popcorn it was really uh-huh. <laughs> but that's important the work that part of work-life balance and sometimes the the shutting off is just picking up a book and just right. reading a book and not focusing on 
television and just having my quiet time, reading a chapter or two of a book that I'm that I'm reading that usually takes me about a month to read or two. But I use it as my escape to work-life balance. Right. Um, I'm torn between a couple of questions, but I guess what what would you say um, like what gives you purpose? What get, what's like your driving mission to continue fighting? Like what, where do you find inspiration and the energy? And is there like a certain, you know, point where that you have for yourself that's going to say, all right, I'm good. My work is done here. Um, I know that's hard and it's different for everybody. And that's like probably seven questions all in one just yeah. then. So <laughs> answer, well, but, uh, you sound like you've got a lot of, you got a lot of areas that you're fighting for in, in driving you and yeah. bringing it all together. Like what, how do you keep it going? I mean, obviously. I think but. my, my, my main theme of that is always, uh, this city has to be provide service for all equally the same. It should never be, and that that's my has always been my thing. It should be, always be fair for everybody. We should always, um, that's what drives me, in the sense of like what the services I get if I lived in the North End or in Black Rock, it should be the services that I get in the East End, or if I lived in uh, the East, the South End by the water, I should be able to feel that the services and where I live is just as safe as if I move anywhere throughout the city. So that creates that sense of equality. But the other part to that is, um, I believe in this city. I believe in the city that I live in because I love it so much. I've never thought about leaving it. People make fun of me sometimes. They're like, I can't believe you like eat, sleep and bleed Bridgeport. I'm like, yeah, I do. Cause I think it's just so dynamic. It has, it's so rich in history and there's so much to offer. And it's, it's a city that I grew up in and I saw my uncles work here. My, my grandparents had a business here. My mother worked here. And I have been fortunate to be able to live and work in my neighborhood. I work three blocks away. And so I believe in sustainability in my community. So, and that's what I want to see in our city is to create that sustainability and equity for everybody. And that drives me because now I'm a grandma. So I wanted to be that way for my granddaughter, right? And another driver is my daughter's in the service. She's in Japan. She loves California. But I I tell her, what would make you come home and stay here? She's like, you know, Bridgewater has to change because there's so much more to to happen, you know, happening outside in big cities because she lived outside of San Francisco for a while. So Um. I'm like, how can I drive that young person to stay here and still be committed to raise their family? Mm-hmm. So that's what drives me. My, my personal family and me loving where I live. I do love the city where I live. Like some people, I get enraged when people talk about it, but the, my driver is, is that I want Bridgeport to be where it was back in, in the 60s, 70s, where people said this was a thriving community and self-sustained. Like, and I fully believe that we have that capability. Our neighborhoods are are unique to, to other parts of the city. Like, um, and we have to develop our city that way. And that that's my driving force. And if I'm council president another two years, at least some of the things that I see happening now about sustainability and equity are happening um, when we're having conversations about city services, public safety, Part of the police accountability, public safety, 
um, task force here in the city to talk about how that impacts our community. And those little changes um, can can really be, you know, the outward line uh, paths to to bringing back our community and and input and really engaging our residents. That's that's what drives me. My my core grassroots organizing is what really what keeps me here. It's not going to be better. I know I'm not going to change it, but putting building the foundation to create those changes is what really drives me. And that's changing it. Mm -hmm. so, and be, and having the commitment in staying when yeah. many people just, you know, look elsewhere and always looking exactly. elsewhere when it's like, there's a lot of beauty right here to be. Yeah. And, and I say that all the time, like, I'm not leaving Connecticut. There's so much to do in Connecticut. I love living in, it's, I think it's the best state in the Northeast because it, it's not too cold, not too much snow. We've got great weather right in the middle. It's it's accessible. <laughs> yes. That's what everybody's moving here. So, yes, uh, you know, they exactly. up the house prices. So. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, yep. it has. Yep. So, yep. I, and, and our cities are, are something that needs to be regenerated. And I believe that, and I'm fortunate, you know, I think you know this, Jackie, um, the three major cities are run, our council presidents are all female, New Haven, Bridgeport, and Hartford. So, yeah. and, and females of color. Yes. So, so that speaks to our voices and the ability to impact change as, as local leaders. So uh, yeah. that's, that is a proud moment for me. Like, I'm like, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> the three major cities are all female council presidents. Yeah, well, and I, not to be, but the mayors are all uh, men, white, white men. So <laughs> you know, I guess it's like, how do we get these women of color yes. um, to run, you know, for higher office? Um, I don't know if I, I'm kind of going off on track, but I think no. that, actually, like Tania's, I think next question is kind of similar to that. But. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yes, yeah, it's, it's exactly that. What do you think uh, we could do to get more Latino women and more women of color, more women, period, uh, to run for um, political leadership roles? I, I think we're starting to see that change now as, as we talk about the new generation, the, the new generation of leaders. And we see that we have Kamala Harris, the AOCs, the Nancy Pelosi's who have been in these positions. Um, for a long time. And, and that's one of the people that I admire, right? right? Nancy Pelosi, she's running the house, the Congress, and, yeah. and, and she has combated like difficult relationships, difficult conversations, and still been able to keep her leadership role. And, and that speaks to um, us supporting each other as women leaders yeah. um, and really engaging in the fact that we can do it as, as, as leaders, you know, we're not, we are emotional people. We, we drive, we make decisions through emotion, but through passion and compassion, but we're all also uh, inclusive thinkers. Yep. And as a woman leader, I think that is the message that we have to, to push forward for our future female uh, candidates and support them wholeheartedly. We tend to support them. And then, you know, there is that, and I feel it sometimes myself when, when we've had these conversations, like in Canada, do you ever think you're going to run for mayor? And I've even said, I don't know, because I don't know if I'll have the backing, right? It's about the financial backing. Yeah. And we'll have the grassroots support, but it's really about the financial backing. And I think we need to learn how to market ourselves in, in a way that we are strong leaders, but financially backable candidates. Yeah. And that's the other part of that conversation. 
Um, that was part of a conversation yesterday. How do we get that financial backing that we need? I mean, we see it across the board, even with the WNBA against the NBA. The men get paid more money yeah. um, than the women uh, basketball players. But why is it? They're playing the same exact sport. But when we're doing the same exact thing our counterparts in the, in the House and in Congress and, and in the state are doing and our mayors. Some of us are doing the exact same things, but just on a, on a smaller scale. And the financial backing is, I think, is the biggest piece that we're missing as far as fundraisers. We can raise the support, but yeah. it's really raising the candidacy of the financial of the financial part of it. Yeah, and I, I think that's that. Yeah, and I think as women, we have mm -hmm. to recognize. You know, I think uh, that's usually the number two issue with women running for office. They're afraid. Mm -hmm fundraising, but if we worked, you know, together as a women's network and support other women running and realize the power that we actually have in terms yes. of giving and fundraising, um, you know, I think changing the conversation a little yep. bit, I think that, I think that that's an excellent point um, that we yep. need to just, yeah, realize. Because even now I'm, I'm going to go into my, my next council race. And someone asked me, how much money are you fundraising? I'm like, um, I don't know. I haven't started fundraising yet, but I've, you know, you've got to get your list of donors. And I think as female leaders, as women leaders, we also tend to not to like to ask a lot. Yeah. Like I find that really hard in my in my personal way. I'm like, I'm like, oh, I hate asking a man for money. <laughs> you know? Well, it's also that, like, you know, the asking for help. I mean, yes. I, you know, my whole family exactly. just had COVID and it was, I can't even explain. I, we're still dealing with it, but I was afraid to ask people for help because yes. I'm just, it's like a weakness. And I just, yes. someone's like, you need help. Like, and yeah. it's, and I, cause we're taught, you got to have it all. You got to be the yeah. one in charge. You've got to, exactly. you know, be able to balance it all and keep it all going. Um, so yeah, and, and I think that that to me, when I have to ask for help, I, I it feels like a sign of weakness, right? Like like yeah. you're weak. Yeah. And in the in the climate that we're in, right, as women leaders progressing, um, it's like we have to have a strong female based network to be a force to be reckoned with. Yeah. Or I, you know, I've been told in different conversations with other with my counterparts, um, you know, they say you need one good male backer to, to help push you forward. That shouldn't be true. It should be, I should be back because I am a good candidate because I do have progressive thoughts. I do um, have thought provoking decisions that I make and, you know, that are going to be the best interest for the community, my constituency group. So that it shouldn't be about, I need um, I'm sounding very feministic right now. <laughs> no, but it's, so, but it's like, you know, yes. it's like you need a good, you need a one man to help you do yeah. that. Well, why can't it, I need one woman to let, you I know. I need one woman, yeah. Yeah, like and, if they to the men. Yeah. And I think we fall into that, like uh, subconsciously, we, we, yeah. we don't want to, we acknowledge consciously that we are moving forward with, with our female counterparts, but subconsciously there's that little part of us that has been programmed to mm -hmm. always think that we need either affirmation from our from our male leaders um, and, and their more support. But if we, we were to come together, I mean, virtually we had a woman, uh, Marilyn Moore running for mayor. Yeah. Um, and she did garner a lot of support, but also at the same time, um, you know, 
people were like, well, who else is supporting you? It's mostly women. It's mostly like female driven. You know, it was it was color driven and and you know, and her platform was anti-corruption. But I saw that the people in the forefront, a lot of it were a lot of fe- were a lot of female leaders, female community grassroots, women organizers. Um, there were some men, there were some men organizers and, and grassroots organizers with her. But there was um, this, I didn't feel like all of us really came together to support her. I, I wasn't on her campaign. I, I supported Joe Gannum, but I, I was looking at that. And that's one of the things that I look at reflectively about how women have to struggle to fundraise and we need to constantly fundraise and validate ourselves, yeah. like over-validate ourselves on purpose and why. Yeah. And, and that's where the financial backing has to be very strong from us together as a cohort of women leaders. And I think the, um, I think it's a good point, like pointing that out about how you do need male allies. As Mm -hmm. We do have to be a team and we all have to work together and men have to recognize the leadership power of women and be an ally to stand up in support of us. Yeah. Yes. Cool. That is true. Yeah. Well, all right. We're going to move to fun questions now. Okay. Uh, um, So, what music do you listen to to like get yourself pumped up for uh, election day or like a big meeting? Do you have like a particular artist or is there a song that's like totally your jam and anthem that? Um, actually, my, my song is uh, I Will Survive. Uh, that, that is like that is like my anthem song. My 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 husband makes fun of me. He's like, are you tired? That's always so played out. I'm like, no, but it drives me. It, it drives me to like feel when I feel defeated or deflated on something like you know you have those moments and you just need that one song to bring you back to to you know charge up that battery to get you going a little bit more and and I think about it and it's on my uh it's on my phone and sometimes it just plays automatically and I think it's uh it's a it's a subliminal message from God's time telling me you will survive you will make it through this you know and that's what I listen to that is my driver um because I've lost one and I, I've lost votes on, on things that I have I am passionate about on the council, but I've survived it. It, it didn't kill me. It just made me stronger and made me uh, think in a new perspective. And that's one of the drivers of it. Nice. And my mom used to listen to that all the time. And I think that's why it's like that, that theme song, you know, that female theme song. Yeah. Yeah. For me. But I do listen to that, and and I'm I'm like a dis. I love disco music, so I listen to this. <laughs> but my mom listened to disco music when I was growing up a lot. So we had you know between salsa and disco music, I listen to that, and and it and it helps me like like get away, come back and rethink myself, and and that helps me think because I I tend to find disco music was very. Um, like women driven, like some of the female singers, yeah. like it was like empowering women. I find those songs like really great. Yeah, that time frame for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It sounds so. like your house was really fun to grow up in. <laughs> it was, it was. Well, I we spent a lot of time like on Friday nights. That's what my grandfather did. Uh, we would all get together on Friday nights at his house and listen to music and dance and, uh, you know, really right. come together as a family. Nice. Just family party. And, and that was one of the songs we always played. It was, it was on the hit list. Oh. <laughs> yes, that was great. So Hollywood is making a movie about you. Which actress plays you? Which actress? 
Um, I don't. <laughs> I was thinking about that one myself, but um, I think I kind of like if Hollywood was to make a movie about me, I like Selma Hayek as an oh, actress. Oh yeah, because I I find her to be. and unapologetic and very assertive in, in the roles that she played. My favorite movie with her is Fool's Russian, where she's, uh, you know, falls in love and marries this guy. Um, <laughs> and uh, her family doesn't know, but she's she's very orientated with her family. And that kind of a character, that kind of embodies my character as a person. So, and I've liked her as an actress, like she did Frida and I liked her in those type of movies. And she's very versatile. Right. And I find yeah. myself relating to that. Um, I was thinking, like, is there a Puerto Rican actress? I mean, people would say, like, J-Lo. You know, I, I'm not really a J-Lo type of girl. I'm more of a Samahaya. I, yeah. I like to play in the dirt and plant and but also be artistic and yeah. and do different things. So I re- she resonates with my personality a lot as far as a, a woman. That's great. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so where do you where do you see yourself in five years? Like, where what do you hope for yourself? Um, where do you um, like to direct your life next? Are you staying in politics, or I mean, I know not like you know, <laughs> but is there stuff like in particular that you would like to accomplish that you you know feel isn't done yet that you know you're? Well, I I was thinking about that recently, and and because you know you have to think about the in next two years. I'm running for council president again. And as I'm running for councils, do I want to be council president again and run? Uh, most likely, yes, because there's still some work that I feel like I want to accomplish. Um, in the next five years, I either want to, my dream, one of my dreams has been always to live in Washington, D.C. Oh, either cool. if, if I don't go work for, if I don't run for Congress, maybe here in five years, I've always said that. Like, that was my <laughs> dream to run for Congress. Oh, my. When I was younger, I used to tell my aunt, who uh, was a teacher in Puerto Rico, she was a professor at a university, I would tell her, I want to go to law school, I want to be a lawyer. Well, I didn't go to law school, I didn't become a lawyer, but I'm still working and fighting for the injustices that I believe in and change becoming you know, an elected official. So I think the other step would that be, if I don't make it to Congress, I want to work on policy. Um, somewhere where I'm helping change and impacting lives. So there, there's a very broad window to this, right? Or I can still be, a, I can go back to grassroots organizing, but I know it's still going to be something that I'm going to be giving back. So most likely policy, maybe somewhere in DC on um, oh, cool. and that level, because I've wanted to live there. That's my retirement vision. Most people say, I want to retire to Florida, <laughs> but my bucket list is to go to Paris, come back, and work in DC and change policy somehow and just like live, that would be like full circle, right? That would be full circle for me um, on my own terms, maybe volunteering within, with an organization, but still giving back because I, I don't think I'll be happy or complete without doing that in some form or fashion. Sounds perfect. Mm-hmm. You're great. <laughs> so the last, the last question that we have is uh, what are three pieces of advice you can give to women wanting to break into politics? Um, the, one, the one that always sticks with me is uh, always think with compassion and be passionate because that one uh, yeah, is coined by my council partner, Marie Valle. Um, two is never, uh, never lose your voice. 
Never lose your voice in, in the sense of always keep your authentic voice. That's important. Authentic voice is important. I would say that. That that between that's between one and two. I think they go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. Yeah. Um, and then it's in no particular order. But and then the third one, the final one would be um, have vision and believe in your vision. Nice. Believe in your vision, because sometimes uh, our dreams are sometimes deferred, like they say, right? A dream deferred, but but you can still come back and eventually do that. And and I say that because I believe that I'm living that right now. My dream was to become a lawyer as a young child. I I didn't get there. I still have the opportunity, but I'm still doing something that makes me feel passionate, and it's still part of my dream is helping and impacting people's lives. But now. I'm on the side of where the laws and the decisions are made. So it's even greater that it's something that can be compounded and last for a long time. So that's the most important part. It got a little detour, deferred, but I came back to it in my, in my late twenties and my thirties. So nice. That's the important thing. Yeah, no, for sure. Well, this was, this was awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. This is, uh, this will be, uh, on, on Monday, uh, April 5th. Okay dropping in and um great yeah great yeah it's been great being here and talking about this stuff and and I don't usually talk about myself to a lot of people so I'm glad that you know you kind of helped me move away from my shyness people don't understand I'm a really shy person by nature surprisingly (laughs) and I like that official shot (laughs) yeah no and uh, well no I think it's hard to make oneself vulnerable Mm -hmm. um, and like showing people sometimes who you are because you kind of have to get things done and yes there's certain vulnerability in that but you know we've been doing this so that other women can hear uh you know other women's stories and how to get involved in politics and trying to find what's the path for them and what resonates with them and so you know everybody's story is has been different but there's Mm -hmm. similar threads in there about you know some strong women in their lives like inspiring them to break in and um and men as well supportive men uh along the way has definitely made a difference too that that is so true and and there's always that one man that that i think supports a a woman's kid and does it doesn't necessarily have to be your partner like my my husband he he supports me but he is not the sounding board that I use for my politics because he's supportive of my ideals. But um, I, I do have a, a, a friend who he has guided me and, and been the crying shoulder that I, that he has been for me since, since my first loss in my first election, he supported um, my progression. And even Tom McCarthy has been a great friend to me, like my predecessor. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's important that we have as uh, women leaders, but, there's a little crying sometimes and it's okay to cry. I, at first someone told me, you're not supposed to cry. It makes you look weak, but you know, that's not true. Crying is just a way of releasing frustration mm-hmm. and showing that you are human and we're, emo- we're, we're, we can be emotional and still be strong leaders. Exactly. So I, I think that's, that's a compounding thing that I realized we can cry, but we still have the ability to fight hard. Right. And, yeah. And as women leaders, I think we fight three times harder because we're, we're fighting all of the stigmas. Yes. And, um, and I was, I did listen to, to uh, the event the other day as I was in another meeting. So I caught glimpses of it and you're right. Some of our messages um, do resonate, but 
the strong, and I come from a, a family of strong women. Like we are all mostly girls. We only have a few boys in our family. So a, a lot of strong with the women are leaders in our, in our house. So you're right to that. We tend to be, have a strong women background. So yeah. I, I want to see more people that look like me in these chairs and it's exciting. 